Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network, brought to you by the Center for Global Ethics and Politics in the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. I'm your host, Emily Crandall, and my guest today is Serene Cotter, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Women and Gender Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center and Jay Newman Chair in Philosophy of Culture at Brooklyn College. She's here today talking with me about her new book, Decolonizing Universalism, a transnational transnational feminist ethic hot off the Oxford University presses this year. Serene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. So I was hoping we could start the interview by having you tell the listeners a bit about your background and sort of how you came to this project. Yeah, I think there's kind of two stories about that I can tell about how I came to the project. The first one is just that, like about the political times that we're living in, that we're living in this moment where we increasingly see um, feminist arguments being used to promote what are imperialist projects. Um, So there's a bunch of ways in which that comes out, but um, it comes out a lot, for example, in discussions of Muslim women um, in the West, where suddenly, and we're seeing this with the current president, we've seen it with a couple of recent presidents, presidents who are um, notorious for um, for not caring about women's rights domestically, suddenly say that they start, that they care about women when they want to, um, in the Muslim case, argue in favor of um invading other countries for imperialist reasons, or um, in a more recent case, um, talk about sexual assault of women crossing the border when they themselves um, have been accused of sexual assault. So part of the um, the reason that I um, came to the project was that I wanted to investigate um, and say something about the ways that feminism gets used to justify imperialism, and whether it's possible to come up with a feminism that doesn't justify imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, the other um, sort of way that I came to the book is I've been working on um, issues related to women um, in the global South for um, pretty much my entire um, career. And it just seemed like in the background of discussions of any subtopic in that area was like what gets cashed out as a question about relativism and universalism. Like mm-hmm. it seemed like, the thing that um, any debate that people were having about um, feminism in the global South devolved into a debate about um, whether we needed to have universal values to be feminists or not. So I kind of thought in this book, um, I'm just going to address that big question directly. And what a big question it is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So maybe before we kind of get into the specifics and some of the other kinds of questions of the book, um, you can just maybe can you can walk through the walk the listeners through the central argument and then we'll kind of get into the specifics. Yeah. So the main thing that I'm trying to show in the book that is that an anti-imperialist feminism is possible. And um, 
in a way like that sounds simple, but actually it turns out to be really complicated because the existing debates have made it seem like, look, you have a choice between being an imperialist and a universalist, meaning being a person who supports um, unjustified exercises of power by people in the North over people in the South and who believes that whatever Western people believe is right is the right thing. You have a choice between that. Um, and then the other choice is not to be a feminist at all, right? To say that like whatever people happen to think is right in their context is the right thing to do. Um, and a lot of people think that that second position is the anti-imperialist position. Um, and to me, that position isn't satisfying because feminism has to be a set of views about right and wrong to be anything, right? Like what it means to be a feminist is partly to be saying like something is wrong with um, our existing system of gender or the way that women are being treated um, in the world. So um, yeah, I what I wanted to say was, look, there is a possible position that's a normative position or a moral position that is capable of saying that something is wrong with gender injustice without saying that whatever serves Western or Northern interests is the right thing. Um, and um, without... Um, saying that whatever Westerners perceive are the correct values are the right values. Um, I can say more about the positive argument of the book if you want, but that's kind of the project. Well, before we do that, why don't we start with, um, in the introduction, you suggest that you have kind of at least two audiences for the book. There's philosophers and then there's sort of feminists. Yeah. Um, and as we know, the overlap between those is not necessarily <laughs> broad. Could you say well, a bit? I want it to be. <laughs> could you say a bit about how um, the different audiences kind of motivated the the project, and maybe how having these two different audiences kind of affected the the structure or the style of the book? Yeah. Um, so one way that it like that having these two different audiences affected the style of the book is that. Um, I tried to start with problems that we see in the political world instead of problems that arose out of the scholarly literature. So um, kind of, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I, I want to talk about things like the use of women to justify um, closing the U.S.-Mexico border or to justify um, invading Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and that was kind of an unusual way to write a scholarly book, actually, because philosophers frequently um, basically tell me that, well, no philosopher articulates um, the views that I'm criticizing. So, mm -hmm. you know, why are you even writing a book about this? And then I have to kind of come back and say, well, one, these views are circulating in the world. And so isn't part of the job of philosophy to just talk about the values that are informing our public discourse, even if a philosopher... Um, hasn't written them down somewhere. And then second, like these ideas lurk in the background of philosophers work, even if they don't actually come out and say them. So, um, so I think that the biggest way that my writing for multiple audiences affected the book was my deciding that I wanted, I'm going to put problems in the world front and center um, and um, not focus like not start the discussion with the problems as they're discussed in the scholarly literature. Great. So why don't we now have you sort of elaborate the positive argument of the book then? Yeah. So I basically say in the book um, that we can come up with a feminism that makes universalist moral claims that isn't imperialist and that 
in order to do that, we just need to kind of shift our thinking in two ways. So one way is that we need to change our understanding of what the normative content of feminism is, meaning we need to change our understanding of what the moral view that is feminism is. Um, And then the second thing is that we need to change our idea about what the role of, um, of moral ideals is in transnational feminist praxis. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of the first thing, so in terms of um, changing our idea of what the normative content or what the moral idea that is feminism is, um, I say that we actually just need to return to an old idea that bell hooks articulated, which is that feminism is opposition to sexist oppression. Um, And I think that if we shift in that way, we'll see that a lot of the ideas that, um, that end up masquerading as feminist and causing imperialist impression, oppression actually don't have anything to do with opposing sexist oppression at all. Mm-hmm. They are instead um, like what, what I, I think ends up happening a lot instead is that people assume that if values are associated with the West, they must bring about progress and therefore they must be feminist ideals. And part of what I'm saying in the book is no, like in order to check to what, check whether ideals are feminist and whether they're compatible with feminism, what we need to look at is how they do um, at changing the status of a subordinated gender to the dominant gender or gender. So in, um, in most cases or many cases, that'll be looking at how um, certain practices end up treating women as a group compared to men as a group. Um, Mm -hmm. Instead of asking, you know, is this um, ideal one that is associated with freedom or with Western progress or something like that. Um, I said that the second part of the argument was that we need to rethink the role of um, moral ideals in transnational feminist organizing. And so, um, and practice and theory. So what I mean there is that, um, I say that we need to think of um, femi- or of feminist praxis as what Amartya Sen would call a justice-enhancing exercise, um, which means that the, mor- the purpose of the moral ideals is to reduce injustice. I think this is also something that um, Charles Mills would say that like in, when he talks about non-ideal theory, um, but what we are looking for from our moral ideals in feminism are... Um, ways to reduce injustice rather than a vision of what perfect justice looks like. And so, um, and as you can see, when I say opposition to sexist oppression, already we're dealing with a negative idea, right? Like what we are looking for in feminism is um, a set of normative ideas that help us oppose something rather than providing a positive picture of what the ultimate end goal of feminism looks like. And then I think when you look at it that way, we want to oppose sexist oppression what that leads to is the possibility that strategies that lead to feminist change are different in a bunch of dif- in different contexts. Um, and that that's fine. That doesn't end up destroying morality to say different strategies um, are right in different contexts. They're right in different contexts because different things are like, because sexist oppression looks different in different contexts and different things are going to work to reduce it in different contexts. But that doesn't undo the fact that sexist oppression is something we want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. So it struck me reading the book and listening to you talk now that a big part of the project is both kind of highlighting sort of paradoxical elements of these kind of positions that you sketch maybe as overly um, 
or maybe as not quite philosophically held positions, but as positions that are sort of underneath and motivating things and also circulating in the public, that you're kind of un- pointing out some paradoxical elements of these at the same time as you're sort of letting feminist theory and praxis like have a kind of paradoxical sort of nature to it. Um, do you think there's anything given this kind of the role of paradox in both the the kind of critique and the positive project that readers might find kind of surprising, either things that you found or that some of the cases that you draw on, or maybe some moves that you make in your argument that readers might be surprised by? Um, so I have one thought about that, but can I just ask, what do you have in mind when you're asking about <laughs> paradoxes? Well, I just think it's really interesting that um, to... And just in the last answer that you gave, you sort of were talking about praxis, but then you want to add theory and add ideals all kind of into it. You want to keep these really tight at the same time as you want to say, we don't want one to overdetermine the other, which might be seen as a kind of, um, you know, as, as pulling in two different directions. But I think you rightly illustrate the necessity of kind of holding those things in tension. So I'm wondering whether there's anything, any kind of moves you make that given that your sort of embrace of tension and your um, sort of resistance to resolving some of these contradictions or um, sort of selecting one of the kind of pairs of dichotomies over the other and saying there's sort of like a middle way that whether any of the moves that you make might be kind of surprising to an audience that expects philosophy to sort of solve problems in a specific way or expects feminists to solve problems in a specific way. Yeah. So I have kind of two thoughts about that. One is just that, um, yeah, I think people maybe want me as a philosopher and want a work of theory or a work that says it's about morality to like provide them with a recipe, right? Like I'm only talking about morality if I can provide like a one size fits all blueprint of like, this is how we make feminist change everywhere. Um, and I guess I just think that that's a misunderstanding of what moral principles are supposed to do. And it's especially like a misunderstanding of what global or like trans contextual moral principles are supposed to do. And that's not just true about like questions about like what transnational feminisms is, right? Like even our like basic everyday moral lives, like rules are hard to apply and the way that we're going to apply them is going to be kind of very contextually laden. I think- um, And a bit messy, right? (laughs) And messy. And I guess this is the other piece. And you're going to need a lot of empirical knowledge about the context in order to understand how to apply them right. And this is something that I talk a lot about in my first book, Adaptive Preferences and Women's Empowerment. Um, But one of the things that becomes clear there is that like Northerners are often intervening in the global South with no actual knowledge about the context that they're intervening in. So like, you know, they may think that um, the welfare effects of a certain practice are one thing and but they just think that based on what the effects of that practice are in their minds or what those the effects of that practice are in their context without actually trying to find out, well, like, okay, I want to end sexist oppression, but is this practice actually making women worse off than men in this context? Like that move often doesn't happen. They think that you can answer the question of whether this is a case of um, causing sexist oppression just by kind of thinking about it from the armchair. And I think that's really wrong. 
I think that's wrong in all moral cases, but I think that's especially wrong in cases where we're talking about how to make feminist change because irreducibly like making feminist change is also partly a practical question, right? Like making the world better. I'm going to have to know like what the, like what is going to produce the effects I want in my context and feminine, like judgments about feminist practice are always partly judgments of that kind. Um, and I can't know what's going to be effective in a context without knowing something about that context. And the means that are going to be effective in a context are going to be, um, di- in one context are going to be different from the means that are effective in another. So like a simple example of this that I use in the book is the, like, if I live in a society that's structured around waterways and I want to get around, I need a boat. Um, if I like, I live in a society that's structured around roads and I want to get around, I like need a car or a rickshaw or something. And, um, to say that doesn't change the fact that getting around is something that I value. At the same time, if I'm going to try to figure out how I should get around in a, in a given context, I need to know whether it's structured around roads or, um, or waterways. I also really loved the ice cream pasta <laughs> imagery. Oh, that one uh, was really good. <laughs> well, it's not mine. So <laughs> thank you. But it, I think it worked well in service of your argument. <laughs> yeah, that example I think actually comes from Bob Gooden's work. But he says, I think, um, he says that, tell me if this is how I put it in the book, Emily, that you have... Um, that if you are deciding between ice cream or chocolates or, or sorry, you decide between like marinara sauce and chocolate sauce, you need to know whether what you're going to put it on is pasta or ice cream. Um, and, but I learned actually after that, that in some places, um, pasta with chocolate sauce is a is a popular thing, but you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the need for empirical evidence. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> oh, exactly. That's such a good point. <laughs> um, what? Oh, go ahead. If you have another, I had another thought about something that might be surprising, but yeah, please. Yeah. Just another thing that I think might be surprising because it was surprising to me when I was writing it is that, um, I think that I learned in writing the book that, so I say that a lot of cons, a lot of ideas, values that we associate with feminism in the West might not actually be very related to feminism at all. Um, they might be only related to feminism in our context, or they might not be related at all. Um, so one thing that might be surprising is that I find in the book that actually um, individualism is not really conceptually related to feminism at all. So if feminism is about how like what, um, gender groups are doing relative to other gender groups, then actually like the focus on individual rights that so many people criticize um, as part of Western feminism, like that focus may not actually be as central to feminism as it appears. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it struck me that um, w- what I thought was really useful about your case studies and your, your empiricism in the book is that it, it really deeply highlights the kind of absurdity of some of these <laughs> uh, what you call missionary feminist positions so much so that they seem absurd in the context of the West, even yeah. I was very struck by that. I think you could, you know, you could turn the argument of the book to around to the West to point out all of these, um, all, all of these various kinds of normative claims that, that 
Western missionary feminists make about about the United States or about gender justice in in the West, and they would seem equally kind of implausible and and silly. That's not a question. That's just an observation. No, but but- <laughs> no, just, first of all, it means a lot to me to hear you say that um, because one of the things that struck me in writing it that I hope will happen to my readers too is there are you realize how deeply ingrained certain Western values are into your mind if you have grown up as a feminist in a Western context. And then once I like sort of flipped the spit switch and just said, like, let's focus on how does this affect women's status relative to men or how does this affect the status of gender groups? Then I was like, oh, my goodness, like all these things that we were we are treating as obviously related to feminism are not that obviously related to feminism. And to go to your point about things that aren't working in the West either, um, I think that that's kind of one of the things that I wish I could write more about in my individualism chapter, which is, you know, I spend that chapter basically saying in throughout the global South, um, Northerners have had this enthusiasm for um, basically the idea that if women can generate their own incomes, they're going to free themselves from oppression. And in particular, that becoming economically self-sufficient goes with the ability to to question and leave your culturally specified role. And I say in that, in that chapter, look, this, not only is this not conceptually related to feminism, this set of values isn't achieving feminist ends. And like one of the reasons it's not is that it worsens the gender division of labor. And I focus on global South context there, but it's like, it's not just true in the global South that giving women the ability to work for an income has not you know, provided the feminist change that we wanted, right? Like we know in the North that just giving women the ability to earn an income without um, social supports for dependency work has also exacerbated the gender division of labor in a bunch of ways that what we've ended up with is, you know, like the famous second shift, like women are now working um, outside of the home and working um, more hours in the home than men. So this idea that's being sold, like, it's kind of, once I put it out this way, I'm like, why was this not obvious to me before? But this idea that's being sold as like going to benefit women in the global South, well, it didn't work out so well for women in the global North either. So why is it going to work? Why are, are we expecting it to work in countries where for various reasons, there are even fewer social supports available? Mm-hmm. I w- so I wanted to ask you to say a bit about, um, so large part of, or sort of, one mode in which you illustrate or demonstrate your argument is to kind of do a, a critique of these views of missionary feminism or Western feminism. And I was hoping you could say a bit more about the kind of temporality sort of at stake in some of the critiques that you give here. Cause I think it, this kind of the ahistorical nature of some of these missionary feminist um, uh, positions or whether stated or implicit is like really key, I think, to the overall argument. So could you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So missionary feminism is the name that I give to the type of feminism that I'm criticizing. I love, by the way, just as a term. I feel like that's really kind of, um, it's a nod to a couple of people's work, but um, 
especially well, to two things in particular, to Uma Narayan's work, um, which I'm going to talk about in relation to the temporality anyway, but she talks about the bad kind of feminism as assuming what she calls the missionary position, which is um, funnier. Nice. Um, yep. <laughs> um, God's essay, um, Do Muslim Women Really Need Saving? So where Western feminism is like associated with trying to save other people, like missionaries save them. Um, so there's a lot of things I say about what constitutes missionary feminism, but um, two, I or like one idea that's really central to it that I draw heavily from Uman Arayan's work is uh, is what um, in another kind of name Abu Lugad calls the resort to the cultural. So there's this idea that um, when people in the north are looking at why women are oppressed in other contexts, they default to a certain type of explanation. And that type of explanation is a cultural explanation. So it says, well, you know, why um, why are women in Afghanistan wearing burqas? Um, well, it is just because it is a part of, like, in quotation marks, like Muslim culture. They've been doing this since time immemorial. Um, and every time we see a patriarchal practice or a sexist practice happening, in another place, the reason is their culture. And one of the things that um, is really kind of bad about the temporality of that is that it places um, sexist practices that happen in other places outside of time. And that in turn um, lets Westerners and Northerners um, never have to ask the question about how their actions or how imperialism may have um, affected the state of women in the other place. So in the Afghanistan case, um, it's very conveniently um, lets people forget um, the the Cold War, like the use of the use of Afghanistan as a Cold War sort of battleground, and the ways in which the United States participated in arming the forces that eventually became the Taliban. So, looking at things by resorting to the cultural, lets Northern and Western people wipe their hands of all. Um, responsibility for um, the situation of women in other contexts. Um, And that's both kind of deceptive about what's going on and allows them to continue to preserve their idea that they are the savior and that the right thing for them to do is go save the other from their own culture. Whereas in many cases, if it's true that imperialism is a significant cause of um, women's oppression in other contexts, then the right response is like the one that Alison Jagger advocates for, which is to at least stop causing harm to other people. So it's just that you can extend the argument in so many ways. I mean, there's so many sort of uh, repercussions of it or sort of consequences. I am wondering whether, so you talked a bit already about um, the kinds of, uh, positions that some Western feminists hold that are sort of linked to ideas that are Western, not necessarily feminist, and how you've tried to kind of delink them from feminism or to say that maybe not only are they not necessary for feminism, but in some cases they might be be bad for feminist ends. Um, could you talk specifically about the idea of eliminating gender roles altogether as kind of specifically maybe uniquely western in a way that's not necessarily feminist i thought those two chapters are so um such an interesting kind of way that all of these things come together and i think um i think the listeners could uh 
benefit from a little bit of a that sp- specific attention to those that argument? Yeah. So um, one reason that comes up a lot in anti-imperialist feminist literature is that um, women who are not Western or actually even within the West, that some women of color feel alienated from the term feminism is that, or for the idea of feminism even, is that they perceive feminism as demanding that they um, that they're demanding the elimination of everything about a system of gender, um, and there's at least two reasons that that can that that demand could be a problem. So one reason is just that it may be possible to imagine gender roles that aren't actually oppressive, right? Like gender roles that are different versus gender roles that are oppressive. Like there's, it may be, I like, I don't know the answer to this question, right? It's above my pay grade, but it may be possible that you could have gender roles that were different in some, like, especially in certain historical contexts that didn't involve um, subordinating one gender to another. So that's the, in the book, um, I talk a lot about um, Inkiru and Zegwu's argument that, um, that, um, pre-colonial Igbo gender roles fall into this category. Of course, I'm not an expert in those particular gender roles, so I can't tell you if she's right or not. But um, the story that she tells is one where you have men and women having distinct roles, but where the roles are possessed of equal power so that women have the ability to veto men's decisions, for example, because they control some spheres of society um, and men control other spheres of society. And because they, um, the society can't, function without both spheres operating and there's power, genuine power exercised in both spheres. Women can veto decision-making power by men, which is different from what we, the spheres that we have in the West where, yeah, like they're separate spheres, but the sphere that women inhabit has no power over the sphere that men inhabit. So one reason people feel like alienated from feminism as abolishing gender roles is that they imagine the possibility of gender roles that aren't oppressive Another reason that people feel alienated from it is that um, women often stand to gain important things by co- like complying with gender roles that are oppressive. Um, and so the, um, the examples that I use about this in the book are examples about what's called patriarchal risk. Um, and these are situations where basically um, women, like where society is structured so that women need the patronage of a man in order to, you know, to get food, to gain income, to gain social status. So it's not false about those societies that in the status quo, like um, women, individual women benefit from, you know, doing what it takes to please their husbands. Um, because if the only way for them to gain food or income or something is for them to keep their husband happy, then it's just straightforwardly true that keeping your, like, you know, participating in this sexist gender role is going to benefit you. And so why I think that's important is I don't think it shows that we should keep those gender roles around, right? Like it's at the end of the day, it's not a feminist thing to advocate that women should be utterly dependent on men. Um, But at the same time, when you're looking at actual practice, we have to look at like at people's actual lives and what's likely to happen in the span of a person's lifetime. And the fact that, um, if like in the short term, just trying to act as though those gender roles weren't present is actually probably going to result in harm to women. So one of the things that I think is very important to look at kind of 
um, under the non-ideal conditions we live in and under conditions where we're trying to make, you know, change in the span of people's lives is we need to recognize that like women do often stand to lose something um, when gender roles are changed. That doesn't mean that we should change the like we that the gender role should never be changed, but it means that we need to like ask serious questions about who's going to bear the costs of getting from our society to a more gender just society. And because we could allocate those costs in a bunch of ways. And if we're only like we're just assuming that the most vulnerable people have to bear the costs and they should just suck it up, then we're going to it's very easy to understand why um, a lot of women are turned off by feminism and a lot of especially vulnerable women are turned off by feminism. It strikes me now listening to you talk about this part of the argument that maybe another thing people might be a little bit surprised by or something is the ex- the sort of uh so you have this kind of really specific sort of negative definition of feminism right as a pro- uh, opposition to sexist oppression and yet at the same time you're advocating for a feminism that's like really flexible and kind of stretchable but which which like isn't those two things aren't intention, but it is, I think, kind of a kind of a surprising move, maybe. Yeah, I also just feel like this is the fate of my career that I'm mm-hmm. always like I'm too like it's too normative for like it's not normative enough for 95 percent of people. <laughs> and then for the other five percent of people, um, it's too normative. Wait, that's interesting. Does that map on at all to your different audiences? Or you think in total, no matter the audience, that's kind of the the spread? Um, I definitely think the people who think I'm not normative enough are more likely to be philosophers. Because, But I think that that's also just partly a result of two things. I mean, one, just philosophers being... I always say two things, but two things come into my mind at the same time. Like <laughs> philosophers being in general, not as engaged with the messiness of the world as mm-hmm. they should be. Um, but also with just how these debates, philosophers have assumed that all these debates in transnational feminisms are just boring debates about relativism and universalism. And then mm-hmm. when we frame the debate in that way, then it's obvious that the relativist side is wrong. So there's right. like, oh, there's nothing to see here. <laughs> well, yeah. And sort of what you suggest, I think, is that transnational feminist debates are debates about praxis and policy in addition to the ideals that should guide those policies and praxis, which is a much more um, sort of robust project than just this, you know, debate between universalism and relativism, which, yeah. And that's where the real moral action is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that you do a really good job of talking about um uh you have a really a really sharp sort of what's the word i'm looking for traditionally philosophic kind of valence of that on that um the uh, what's oh, why am i losing my words right now the empirical <laughs> grounds so i like the way you talk about the kind of costs of justice in this kind of not just a material empirical way, but in a sort of philosophical way. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So um, if if this is what you have in mind, um, I think that a lot of philosophers think that what it means to do moral or political philosophy is just to kind of figure out what would be the right thing to do. Um, Like what does an ideal world look like or what is the right thing to do 
assuming that this certain set of conditions is already met. Um, and I want to say, okay, like we can theorize about um, what we would do if this certain set of conditions was already met if we want, but at the end of the day, that's not going to be action guiding about what we should do in this world. So let's also do moral philosophy and political philosophy about what we should do in our actual world. And then what it starts to look like when the thing that you're trying to do is to reduce gender injustice is um, that you have to look at, like, if I take this strategy, um, what are the results of the strategy going to be? And one of the realities, I think, um, and I've written about this a lot in other work about domestic contexts too, but um, what's because feminist change involves collective action problems, which I'll um, explain in a second Mm -hmm. here, um, individual women are almost always going to have to bear costs in order for us to get from um, the position that we're actually, like the position that we're in to a more just society. So to say something about collective action problems, since feminism is a, um, a, um, since feminism is about the status of um, gender groups relative to each other, it's about the status of groups. Um, And the way that um, oppressive societies work is by making it the case that individuals stand to benefit from selling it, selling out Mm -hmm. their group. So like, you know, when I talk about it in domestic contexts, I often talk about like leg shaving or makeup wearing as a good Mm -hmm. example of this. Like, I think you also talk about high heels in the book, right? Okay. Yeah, I think I do. Yes. Um, so with any of those kind of like beauty norms, you, um, it's definitely the case that all women would be better off or the, like women as a group would be better off if those norms didn't exist. Right. If women were not expected to wear makeup or dye their hair or shave their legs at the same time, um, you, any individual woman is likely to bear costs um, if she refuses to do that thing. And she's the only one or one of a subgroup who does their thing. So mm-hmm. every time I teach intro to women's studies, I have a student or two who stops wearing makeup and they come and they say, like, everyone keeps telling me I look tired. Well, <laughs> if none of us wore makeup, we would all look tired. Like none of us would look tired. Right. We'd all look the same. <laughs> like women. We'd look like people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we look like people. Um, but the problem is if like 95% of women are wearing makeup and then making it seem like, oh, this is what a normal woman looks like, then you look like an abnormal woman um, if you are the one who isn't wearing makeup. And then this example sounds frivolous, but that can have real costs, right? Like there's data showing that if people, if you look like in quotation marks, you don't care about yourself, then, you know, you're less likely to get hired for a job. People are less likely to take you seriously. You're likely to make less money. So I think that's a good example of a case where like, look, the woman who stops, um, who stops wearing makeup, um, she is go- like, if you just say, oh, the feminist solution is that you need to stop wearing makeup. What you're ending up prescribing is that that woman just take on a bunch of costs. Um, and part of what I'm saying in the book is like, look, these like there's going to be costs always of getting from this world to a more feminist world. What we need is like a way of thinking that lets us look at the costs instead of it's like pretending that they're not there. And it's. Because- Oh, sorry. No, you go. No, go. (laughs) I was just going to say your argument for you. And to make make sure that those costs aren't disproportionately borne by the vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Right. And that's, uh, yeah, so that is exactly what I think. And I think one of the dangers um, of a lot of kinds of theorizing about these issues that are popular is that they just erase the costs. And one of the dangers of erasing the costs and just being like, oh, this would be good and not looking at what's going to happen, what's going to need to happen to get us from point A to point B is that the actual usual result is interventions that end up making vulnerable people more vulnerable. Can you maybe say a couple things about what the sort of lessons for solidarity are from from your work on this book or work you've done in preparation for this book or in the arguments as themselves? Yeah, so I think um, one lesson about solidarity that I've already kind of mentioned, but I think is worth saying again, is that um, Northern feminists and Western feminists need to be... Um, very aware of their role in causing sexist depression in other places. Um, now, I'm not, of course, saying that every case of sexist depression in another place is caused by Westerners or Northerners, but I am saying that um, people in the West and North need to like put on like a set of glasses that makes them look for that, like mm-hmm. look for the ways in which the behavior of Northern and Western countries um, is complicit in causing um, women's oppression elsewhere. Um, And part of why I say that we need to put on those goggles is that in the first chapter of the book, I spend a lot of the time saying, well, we are, even though we don't know it, we're living under goggles that like that make that invisible, Mm -hmm. Um, that that make us immediately assume that it's like inherent eternal characteristics of people in other countries that cause them to oppress women. And so what does that end up meaning about what solidarity looks like if you start to look at ways in which Western and Northern people um, are playing a causal role in um, the oppression of women in other places. Well, one thing it means that I've already mentioned is that Westerners need to um, take responsibility for, like and Western feminists need to focus more on trying to, to change the behavior of their own countries and to change the structure of the global system, right? So um, one of the things that I talk about throughout the book is the worsening of women's gendered labor burdens. Um, So that's like a fancy way of saying that women end up having to put more and more of their energy um, into unpaid care work, into cooking and into environmental protection. Um, We, um, why, why is that increasing? Well, a big part of the reason that's increasing, for example, is the, is policies from the international financial institutions at that um, Northern and Western countries are at the helm of. So you want to stop this gender division of labor? Well, maybe instead of working directly on local cultural norms, which are often a part of the puzzle, you work on the ways in which your country is creating the conditions that um, cause the norms to have have this kind of effect on women as strongly as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I think it means is that um, Northern and Western feminists, and this is true about both about kind of minority communities or racialized communities, um, in the North and West and women in other countries is that, um, Western and Northern feminists need to look more closely at like what the effects of their feminist politics on other women are likely to be. Mm -hmm. And that means kind of paying attention to not just like what you're doing when you're speaking in public and organizing around these issues, isn't just opining about what is right and just like, you know, that you operate in a certain political context where, um, 
ideas that you express are likely to receive certain forms of uptake. So I think that's important, for example, when to return to some examples I talked about at the beginning um, of the interview, when you look at Islamophobia, for Mm -hmm. example, that um, people might think that they're just opining about gender justice in general in public sphere, in public forums when they, um, you know, they make claims about Islamic dress. Um, But one of the realities is that we live in a political context where we know that the likely effect of these claims is um, that they often have uptake um, that is just kind of people at using it as fuel for their Islamophobic fire, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that the, when you go in certain communities and discuss these issues, the main uptake that they're likely to get is um, to kind of further the idea that um, Muslims deserve imperialist action against them because they oppress their women. Or in another example I look at in the book, um, talk, um, talking about um, the 2012 gang rape um, in India um, that received so much international attention, that one of the effects of talking about um, that gang rape in the North was um, basically to cause people to sort of celebrate how great the North and West are and how terrible things are in India. Mm-hmm. Um, when what should have been happening is a discussion about how sexual violence against women is a global phenomenon. So I think um, another kind of solidaristic thing that's important for Northern and Western feminists to do is to, when they're organizing, like think about what, like what kind of actual uptake is are the feminist arguments that I'm advancing and the way that I'm advancing them going to have um, in this context that I operate in and how can I, this isn't a reason to stop talking about these things, but it is a reason to talk about them in ways that try to subvert the narrative that automatically makes oppression of women um, from another country or in another context, just another um, reason to add to the pile of explanations of why other people are bad word. And I think there's so much more we can say and questions we could ask about uptake and all the various other things involved there. But we've taken up a lot of your time already. Before we sign off, could you maybe tell the listeners a bit about what you're working on now or what's next? Yeah, so um, I am actually hoping to work on a book that engages with some of these ideas that's targeted at a more popular or general audience. Um, Ooh, fun. But um, it's going to kind of combine ideas um, between uh, from this book and my last book. And the basic thrust of it is going to be that um, the ideas that have been masked, like the, the ideas that have been called women's empowerment and feminist ideas in global context aren't actually feminist ideas at all. That's very exciting. I very much look forward to that project. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you talk about your work and your book. And I encourage everybody to pick it up and give it a read. Thank you so much for your um, great questions and conversation, Emily. I'm so happy to have been here. <laughs>